A friend of mine um, used to get very worked up when it came to his annual review at work. It was a novelty. It was, it was going back quite a long time now. There's not many firms were doing it in those days, but his was one of them. And his boss started by asking him how well he thought he thought he had done over the past year. And so he told him how good he was and how he did, what he'd done. And, um, and then the boss would say what he thought about it. And finished by telling my friend what he must do to do better from then on. Well, my proud friend hated it. He thought his boss was an idiot. And... Um, if only he could manage better, but that was, that was perhaps not a natural, an unnatural reaction. It was a framework, it's a framework, isn't it, of, of, of a review, how one sees one's performance, how one's superior sees it, and then what one should do next. And that's the framework I'm suggesting we use this morning as we look at this letter to the last of the seven churches situated in the west of Turkey, but they were written almost 2,000 years ago. It was written by John, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, who's in prison. And in prison, he experiences a glorious visual revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, whom he knew well as as a disciple and whom he was to be on very familiar terms with. We find at the Last Supper, he was leaning on Jesus and, and, and they were mates in a sense, in one sense. But suddenly he sees him as he is now. And the only reaction of his friend John is to fall at his face prostrate before him because he's such a great and wonderful person and Jesus by the Holy Spirit encourages instructs John to write these letters and to write what we call revelation and he was they were written to help those in the early the young churches to keep on following Jesus even when the going was hard John was probably by now a bishop of these seven churches. We would perhaps use that word about him today. And it's a circular letter to all. And as he writes to all, so he's he's writing individually to each church. And although John may not have realised it, as he was writing, he was writing to us. And all churches today, right across the world, thousands of years later. And so if you... And it would be really helpful to have the Bible open. I think this morning, if you're interested to to follow this letter, it's almost at the end of the Bible, page 244, Revelation 3. And we'll see in verse 22 there what he's saying. And because we're going to look at this quite a bit. Let anyone who has an ear, let anyone who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So if you've got an ear this morning, or even two, Jesus says, listen carefully. And I'm going to pray that we'll do that now. And so we pray, Lord, that just as you open blind eyes, you also open deaf ears. And it may be that some of us in our inner ears have been deaf to your voice. This morning we pray that we will hear it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So with our Bibles open at Revelation chapter 3 from, the, uh, from verse 14 onwards, um, and using our framework, we'll see how the people in the church in Laodicea saw, it, saw themselves, then how Jesus saw them, and finally what they should do next. Got that? So we see how they saw themselves by looking at verse 17. And verse 17 says, 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Well, they were totally deluded. It's a delusion in self-assessment. We're doing fine, don't worry about us. That was their prevailing view. We're doing nicely, thank you very much. How do you think we might see ourselves here in St. Andrews this morning? St. Andrews, your church, our church. Well, I think we'd say we're mostly nice people. There'd be people like you, people like me. We're above average, surely. I mean, we have proper coffee here. We encourage Bible teaching. We encourage generous giving. We encourage outreach in the parish. Oh, we may not be completely perfect, but we're not too bad. Could we be kidding or deluding ourselves? It might be something for you who meet in the life groups this week to discuss, if you are meeting this week, to discuss this as you have been doing, if, if, how we are seen. And our gospel reading, which we just read from Mark's gospel, is a good example of someone whose self-assessment was seriously flawed. I'm talking about that rich young ruler, as we called him. He scrupulously kept almost most of the Ten Commandments and always had done. And he wanted to be sure that God would receive him and reward him when he died. Those who knew him well, his companions thought he deserved it. He was a thoroughly decent chap. And Jesus said in verse 21 of that reading we just had, Jesus regarded him with great affection. He looked at him and he loved him. He felt such a, a warmth towards this young man, a nice, a wonderful chap, just the sort of person you'd like to marry your daughter if you have one. But if you look at the passage, if you look at the passage carefully, you will see some commandments out of the ten are not mentioned. And that was where he went wrong. Those were the ones he wasn't keeping. You see, the first two commandments, if you remember, um, for example, forbid anything in one's life to take the place of God. You should have no other gods before me. You should not make idols, is the second one. And the last commandment, which is not, and it's not mentioned here, is that you should not covet. You should not long for something so much that nothing must prevent you from having it. And what does this poor chap do? Well, he's in love with his, with his wealth, isn't it? He put his wealth first and pursuing it for more. And that was first in his life. So by trying to hold on to a, a lifestyle that he, that he could never keep, he was in danger of losing eternal life. And if that's not being deluded, I don't know what is. And yet it's true very much today. We often go for things that we cannot possibly hold and keep forever at the risk of losing the one thing that God has promised us forever, eternal life in his presence. So in your, self, um, so in your self-assessment as a, as a regular in our church, could you be living a delusion? Could you be deluding yourself? The good you endeavor to do in most of your life, do you believe that it will compensate for those little weaknesses in other areas, do you think that? Over the years when we've had this discussion, it's come up in Christianity Explored or in Alpha, a lot of people think that. But Jesus says it doesn't work like that. 
And those in the church of Laodicea who thought they were doing well were deluded. So how is it that Jesus sees them? Well, the answer is with disappointment. He was disappointed with them. I don't know about you, but I like my tea really hot, made with boiling water, preferably served in a bone china cup. I don't ask for much, do I? In the summer, I can enjoy a, a, a nice glass of iced tea. But anything between those two, I find quite distasteful. And that's what the, the image that comes across in this letter, doesn't it, in verses 16. Jesus finds there this church disappointing and distasteful. Look at verse 16, it's so blunt, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, Jesus, if when you spit something out, you're rejecting it. And again, it's a hard thought to accept, but the Bible does warn us that Jesus does reject those it does reject, does reject those who don't turn to him. And it may be a surprise to us to hear the loving Lord Jesus speak like this. But it's because he loves us that he tells us what is wrong with us. He tells us like it is. It does take love to do that. He wants the best for us because he loves us so much. He wants the best for that young man who he loved. He loves you and he wants the best for you. And so we read in verse 19, back in Revelation 3, I reprove and discipline those whom I love. And following him, you see, they were half-hearted. They were neither hot nor cold. They were materially successful and self-sufficient. Look at verse 17 again. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Jesus sees it very differently. Look what he says next in that verse. You just don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Can you imagine Jesus speaking like that to us? Actually, I think the others in the six churches, Francis explained that how all of the six, all the seven churches would have seen the same letter, so they would have read this circular, read about what Jesus was saying to each of them. They probably smile a bit guiltily, a bit of a smirk when they heard this, because you see, they knew how smug the Laodicean people were about money, about good eyesight, seeing clearly about clothes, because we're told in AD 61, an earthquake devastated that part of Turkey, as, as it can of course today, and Rome under Nero offered the council, the town at Laodicea money to help to rebuild their city because it was completely destroyed. They said, no thank you, we can manage on our own, we've got enough. So they were fairly proud of their resources, that they were resourceful. They actually had in the district a natural source of minerals from which they could profit because it was exported all over the place for eye medicine. So the reference to them not having good eyesight is, is particularly uh, a given, uh, rather, um, the word escapes me, but I think you know what I mean. They, had, they also had, a successful, had successful clothing. They were known for making clothes. So this idea that they were poor or blind and naked was particularly uh, poignant for that. So they were okay, they thought. They were rich. 
But Jesus' advice to them then and to us today is to wholeheartedly trust me, Jesus. Trust me for the things that really matter. Verse 18, he says this, you read it. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, white robes to clothe you, salve to anoint your eyes. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read that faith in Christ for salvation is more precious than pure gold. This is what Jesus wants them to have, this faith in him. That's what Peter tells us. Paul, in the word, in, uh, earlier on in, in that very chapter, we're told that the white robes define godly living and good behavior. And uh, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, speaks about the importance of a good eye treatment as he prays that their eyes will be enlightened to see what God promises us when we wholeheartedly trust in him. So when you or I, as followers of Jesus, begin to rely entirely on our own selves, on our own resources to survive a crisis, our skill to always find the best way to go, our wisdom to decide what's right and what's wrong, we not only disappoint our master, but become distasteful to him. What a sobering thought. Because we've stopped trusting in him, do you see? We're relying on ourselves, and so we become lukewarm, half-hearted. And Jesus wants us to be wholehearted in our faith, complete trust in him. So, having seen ourselves perhaps at times being self-deluded and disappointed in Jesus, we now come to the bit about doing something. Do something is my third and final point, although I'm not going to stop yet. But if the purpose of this review is to correct those delusions and, disappoint, and avoid disappointment, some action needs to follow. And so we see that in verse 19. Jesus says, be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen. To be earnest means to be serious. To repent is to stop going in one direction in order to go in another. And that's exactly what he wanted the Laodiceans to do. To stop trusting in themselves and to follow him wholeheartedly. Listen, verse 20, he says. To listen to Jesus is to take seriously what he says in the Bible. And in this passage, we have this wonderful invitation in verse 20. Do look at it. You know it, I'm sure, many times before. Here it is. I'm standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. And this is something that Jesus wants us to do. To welcome, to welcome him at the centre of our lives. To open the door of our personality. Some of you may think, well, I remember doing that as a teenager at a, at a church camp, or I did it at an Alpha course. I asked Jesus to be my saviour. And I did believe that from that moment I had become a Christian. Wasn't it just once and for all, that verse? Doesn't it just apply to that? In one sense, yes. In another sense, no. And let me explain what I mean. When, many years ago, I consciously heard Jesus' invitation, I opened the door by asking him to be my saviour. And I believed at that moment God forgave me all my sins and gave me a new start. That is the promise is in the scripture. And, that's, and according to the New Testament, you and, and all of us here who have prayed a similar prayer are described in the New Testament as being in Christ. It's like a, 
a change in status, so that now when God looks upon us, God the Father looks upon us, he sees first of all Jesus. He sees Jesus, and we are accepted by Jesus, and we're accepted by God. We are in Christ. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress a few hundred years ago now, had a great illustration, I think, on this. It's always sticks in my mind. Of, of you can imagine life in England, the, the very poor sights you might see of desperately poor beggars. He said, if I see one of these desperate beggars with his sores on his arms and he's looking really ill, and I take off my coat, my cloak, and I put it on him, what do I see? I don't see his rags. I don't see his dirt. I don't see his sores. I see my, my coat. And he said, and God has put us in Christ, so when he looks on us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, and we are in him. Isn't that wonderful? That's why we can come to God and say, my Father. And that is what, what it means when we receive Jesus, we are considered to be in Christ. So, yes, when Jesus comes into our hearts, he comes in and never leaves. But no, if we think that's all that that verse is about. Remember, it's about Christ in us individually and in our church together. Because it was originally addressed, as you can see, to a church full of people who were in Christ. But Christ was not being seen to be in them. And therefore they were a big disappointment. So we are called Christ, we're given that wonderful gift of Christ in us. Uh, of, of us being in, of Christ being in us. But we need to show that to our, of Christ, oh, sorry, of we are in, let me start again. When we come to know him, Jesus Christ comes in us. But we are to be called to be, for him to be seen in us, working through it. Let me, it, it was as if um, they had invited him through the front door of their house, their, response, their, their personalities, and, and they just put him in one room, the Sunday room. There they would meet him once a week and they carry on without him afterwards. Once they'd, they'd had their time, their hour with him and after that they went away as if he wasn't there at all. Christ was in, but he wasn't allowed free reign of their lives. And that's no way to treat an honoured guest, especially one who's laid down his life for them. So at our conversion, we were accepted by God once and for all in Christ. But now Christ is in us. That's the, 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 the difference. Christ is in us and he's going to change us little by little, right through our lifetime, to make us more recognisably like the child of God, the family likeness. And so to do that, he needs to be in control in every part of our lives. No door to be shut to him in our lives. Do you see the difference there? I hope I'm, I'm sorry I got confused for a moment. It's one thing for us to know that our status that we're secure in Christ, but Christ in us needs uh, is an ongoing process. In theological terms, being in Christ is known as justification, being forgiven and accepted once and for all. But Christ in us is sanctification is an ongoing process of making us holy of transformation and that's why we need to be wholehearted in letting him do so do you see that that he's going to work out within us into changes
And at the very beginning of this letter, verse 14, in chapter 3 of Revelation, we read the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. Those words, Jesus is the last word. He's the Amen. He's faithful and true. We can trust him. And he's the creator. And he wants to be creative in us. And that's why he invites himself into our personality. And he talks about eating with us. He wants to be at home and sharing all we do. A very homely idea, the thought of the kitchen table, perhaps, sharing with us by his Holy Spirit, because that's how he comes into us, and through his Spirit. He will fill us and make us useful and fruitful and productive with the fruits like uh, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness and self-control. So if you have been, don't go on deluding yourselves into thinking that all this doesn't matter. It really does. If you're disappointing Jesus by not trusting him to have free reign in every area of your life, do something about it. Earnestly resolve to open every door to him from now on. Maybe a quiet word with one of us after the service will help you to make that start. And then when the time is right... Jesus, having been welcomed into our home, welcomes us into his home. Look at verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will give up, who's in other words, who's wholehearted, I will give a place with me on my throne. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Will you trust him to do that? Wholeheartedly? Let's pause for a moment as we pray. Lord Jesus, if we have heard your voice, if we've heard your knock this morning, and we've never opened the door to you, we pray by your grace that nothing will prevent us from doing so. And Lord Jesus, if we have done that years ago and asked you to come in, but we have kept other doors within close to you, if we hear your voice this morning by your spirit, enable us to open every part of our life to you that you will be the Lord, the glorious Lord, in everything we do, and work your work through us. In his name. Amen.